0: Hey, welcome to episode 69. As always, you have all of my gratitude for hitting that little triangle that points to the right to play or download this labor of love. Whether this is your first time or your 69th time listening, you're taking time out of your morning, your afternoon, or your evening. As the case may be, so is sincere thanks for real. I'm your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Well, Halloween is now in the rearview mirror by a week or so, so it's time to charge through those stores like a hurdler if you're looking to get candy on clearance for anywhere from 50 to 75% off. I picked up a couple of boxes of strings of orange lights for my classroom for next year, seeing as how one of the strands that I had painstakingly positioned just so decided to bite the big one. And since I got them two days after Halloween, they were half off. Huzzah! And as the goblins and demons and ghouls all retire to their crypts, graves, and mausoleums for another year, we now pivot and set our sights on the new month of November. Or as film buffs call it, Noir Vemba. And what in the hell is Noir Vemba? It is the nickname that film buffs have for November, as they use this month to celebrate all things related to film noir. In other words, November is Film Noir Month. The term first came about in 2009, when the owner of the Tumblr page Film Noir and Femme Fatales coined the phrase, and it's been in every cinephile's lexicon ever since. But what the frig is Film Noir, you may ask? It's a lot of different things, but, boiling it down to the essentials, it's a type of film that enjoyed its heyday in the 1940s and 50s. Whoa, no! oh, boss, take it down a level, and remember the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. Probably the best way to explain the film noir is to explain what came before it. The gangster pictures of the 1930s. These gangster pictures would have starred the likes of James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, and sometimes Humphrey Bogart. They grew in popularity during the 1930s, the decade of the Great Depression. Real-life world events catapulted stories of thieves, crooks, embezzlers, and bootleggers into the big time. So the First World War ended. The 1920s was a decade of excess and self-indulgence in terms of eccentric behavior, illegal drinking, trends like flagpole sitting and swallowing goldfish, and, of course, dancing the Charleston. Which included legs flailing all over the place like a hyperactive toy poodle on mescaline. And then on Tuesday, October 29, 1929 the stock market crashed and brought about a worldwide economic depression that would last for over a decade. For the first year and a half, two years of the depression, prohibition was still in effect. It would not end until 1931, so stories in newspapers about bootleggers, gamblers, prostitutes, tax evaders really captured the public's imagination. Film critic Leonard Malton had this to say about how this spilled over into the movies. It was prohibition that really fueled gangsterism across the country because of the running of illegal liquor, and that, of course, fueled story writers. End quote. The 30s was a time when Hollywood wrote, shot, and released pictures in under a year, so the movies themselves were just about always immediately relevant when they premiered. Daryl Zanuck, the executive producer of Warner Brothers at the time, commented that, quote, they ripped the stories from the streets and put them on the screen. End quote. But it was more than the immediate relevance that popularized gangster pictures. Audiences also got vicarious thrills out of seeing big business and big government getting slapped in the face, metaphorically speaking, from these on-screen bootleggers and lawbreakers. It was the idea of screwing over lawmakers and politicians and big business leaders and giving them the middle finger, also known as the cover image on your handy Massachusetts driving manual. Gangsters were risk-takers who got results, it was a twisted version of the American dream. It was not It was not hard work and perseverance that got you success. It was wealth and power, and it didn't make a damn bit of difference how you got those two things in life, according to these characters in these pictures. It was an ass-backwards rendition of the rags-to-riches mythology, if you think about it. Politicians and bankers failed America, so we're just gonna take what you owe us, we're gonna beat the system. Of course, with the censorship guidelines being what they were at the time, Screenwriters had to be careful to come right out and say that these movies do not seek to glorify gangster activity, but to depict it as a societal ill that we all must be responsible for solving. So, gangster pictures like The Public Enemy, The Roaring Twenties, Angels with Dirty Faces, all of them starring James Cagney, Little Caesar starring Edward G. Robinson, and The Petrified Forest with Humphrey Bogart as a wild escaped convict All these gangster pictures made a killing at the box office. Thank you. But like most trends, the gangster pictures eventually wore a little thin, and even James Cagney began turning down gangster roles in favor of fresher material, such as the musical Yankee Doodle Dandy, which got him his Best Leading Actor Academy Award. Plus, by the late 30s and early 40s, there was that thing that history calls World War II. Of course, this was a very bleak period of time for the world for reasons so numerous and so obvious that it's not even worth listing them all. Suffice it to say that there was a lot of anxiety, malaise, despondency, disillusionment, and hopelessness. And that brings us to film noir. You could probably call them crime thrillers, which they are to an extent, but these were different kinds of criminals. These weren't the career gangsters who worked their way up through the underground system to achieve some kind of cult status in their myopic worlds. Film noir was much darker, much bleaker, much more sardonic than the gangster pictures that came before it. Gangster pictures would depict career criminals enjoying some degree of success, however short-lived it would be, followed by their censorship-required downfall. But the leading characters in film noir experience mostly grim failure at every turn. They enjoy no success. They act out of pathetic desperation. Going beyond the character types, film noir also had a very different aesthetic. It was a much more stylized kind of film, more artistic than the straightforward gangster picture. Film noir was also about the stark contrast between dark shadows and bright light for dramatic effect. Silhouettes of men in trench coats or fedora hats, smoking cigarettes in dimly lit bars or in alleyways. Smoking. Always smoking. The characters in these movies were always lighting up. The tone of these stories were more downbeat. They're moody as fuck. They're gems. And this captured the zeitgeist of the times, of the World War II years. Psychological detachment is what film noir characters are all about. Alienation from the world and from anybody who might be able to give them some sense of true friendship and companionship. Some of the noir films from the era that are usually at the top of best-of lists include 1941's The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor, 1946's The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, 1944's Laura with Dana Andrews and Gene Tierney, 1946's The Postman Always Rings Twice with John Garfield and Lana Turner, and one of this episode's two featured films, 1944's Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck in a butt-ugly wig, and Edward G. Robinson. The other film covered in this episode is 1948's Sorry Wrong Number, also starring Stanwyck, as well as Burt Lancaster. Sorry Wrong Number may not be as much remembered as the rest, but it's a worthy addition to the canon, so damn it all, I chose that one to do my part to keep its memory alive. So happy November to you and your kin. So now that you got the historical context of Film Noir, here's the breakdown of the rest of this episode. Spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both Double Indemnity and Sorry, Wrong Number. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the listener trivia segment. So join me as we rewind 78 years back to 1944, a year when the Daily Mail became the first transoceanic newspaper, Batman and Robin comic strip premiered in newspapers in February, Casablanca received the Best Picture Oscar in match. American movie star Jimmy Stewart flew his 12th combat mission, leading the second bomb wing in an attack on Berlin. Mount Vesuvius in Italy erupted after months of volcanic unrest, destroying a few nearby towns. Gandhi was freed from prison in May, and of course, Operation Overlord, D-Day in June. In Hollywood circles, Double Indemnity, directed by Billy Wilder, who would go on to helm Sunset Boulevard and Some Like It Hot, both of which covered previously in this podcast. Double Indemnity premiered first in Brazil in April, then the United States in early July, before expanding to Canada in August, and the UK and Turkey in September, before going global over the next few years. Double Indemnity received seven Academy Award nominations, including one for Best Picture, Best Director for Billy Wilder, Leading Actress for Barbara Stanwyck, Best Screenplay, Shared by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, as well as Musical Score, Sound Recording, and Cinematography. And as our story begins, there is the silhouette of a man on crutches slowly making his way towards the camera, while an ominous musical score plays forebodingly over the opening credits. The music, by the way, is bloody brilliant. Once he seems to be able to walk no farther into the camera, he becomes fuzzy and out of focus dissolve two nighttime shots of Los Angeles, and a car speeding along the not-quite-empty city streets, nearly sideswiping every vehicle that has the right-of-way. Then it pulls up in front of an office building, the Pacific All-Risk Insurance Company. A figure with a long coat draped over his shoulders hobbles over to the door, knocks twice for the elevator operator to let him in, which he does. The elevator man greets the mysterious figure. Why, hello there, Mr. Neff. So there's familiarity. Mr. Neff, N-E-F-F, played by Fred McMurray, walks in, and he asks to be taken up to the 12th floor, where his office is. Their dialogue reveals that Neff is in the life insurance game. That's his jam. He slowly and stealthily makes his way into a closed office with the lights out. He makes his way over to the desk, turns on the desk lamp, settles back into the seat, removes a cigarette case and lighter from his coat pockets, and lights up, and again... If you can find me a film noir where there is no smoking, I will paint your house with my feet. He takes out a dictaphone and, in classic film noir formula, he begins his sorry sort of tale, which is all told in flashback. He says Office Memorandum, Walter Neff, Department Keys, Claims Manager, Los Angeles, July 16, 1938. Dear Keys, I suppose you'll call this a confession when you hear it. Well, I don't like the word confession. I just want to set you right about something you couldn't see because it was smack up against your nose. You think you're such a hot potato as a claims manager, such a wolf on a phony claim. Maybe you are, but let's take a look at that Dietrichson claim. Accident and double indemnity. You were pretty good in there for a while, Keys. You said it was not an accident. Check. You said it was not suicide. Check. You said it was murder. Check. You thought you had a cold, didn't you? All wrapped up in tissue paper with pink ribbons around it. It was perfect. Except it wasn't. Because you made one mistake. Just one little mistake. When it came to picking the killer, you picked the wrong guy. You want to know who killed Dietrichsen? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichsen. Me, Walter Neff, insurance salesman. 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yes, I killed him. I killed him for money. And for a woman. And I didn't get the money, and... I didn't get the woman. Pretty, isn't it? This may sound like I just revealed every possible spoiler that exists for this film on planet Earth, but I didn't. This is very often a trait of film noir. To give the big reveal at the very beginning, more often than not, as told by the male lead, the cynical, jaded anti-hero, and the mystery lies in, how did he get here? as well as a confusing sense of, what the fuck is he talking about? The story unfolds throughout the film's running time, all in flashback with Walter Neff's voiceover narration as he continues recording his confession, or whatever he wants to call it if he doesn't like that word. He proceeds with, it all began last May. While strolling through the park one
1: day, day, all in the merry
0: month of May, Okay, maybe it wasn't that innocuous. But Neff launches into his tale of sin and scandal. He drove over to a Spanish colonial home in Las Feliz, that merry May Day. At the door, he asks the maid if he can see Mr. Dietrichson. He's hoping to renew his auto insurance policy. He's let in, and at the top of the stairs, wearing nothing but a towel and a blonde wig that would make George Washington envious, is Mrs. Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Oscar nominee Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> She's sultry. She's sexy. She's scantily clad. She's seductive. She leaves fire on the ground with every step her feet take. She asks him what he wants, and he says he wants to talk to her husband about auto insurance. And he is getting his marshmallows toasted as he grins and pants and drips with perspiration and makes double entendres like the policy lapsed, and I'd hate to think of there being an accident when you're not, uh, fully covered. She responds, Perhaps I know what you mean, Mr. Neff. She says she'll get dressed and be right down. She turns and makes her exit, and his voiceover narration admits, I was thinking of that dame upstairs and the way she looked at me, and I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. So he's turned on like a hyena in heat as he cabbage patches his way into the living room to wait for her. She comes down, they talk shop about insurance for a minute or two, and then potential personal interest just might be revealed on the part of both of them. But I'm going to leave it to you to discover, at least until you get to the spoiler alert before the fun facts. Four years after double indemnity, Barbara Stanwyck, perhaps willingly, found herself slapped into another acting job of the film noir mold. This one a film adaptation of a wildly successful radio play called Sorry, Wrong Number, which had starred Agnes Moorhead. This film version is directed by Anatoly Liffak, with a screenplay by Lucille Fletcher based on her own radio play. In fact, she got the Writers Guild nomination for Best Screenplay. As the opening credits begin appearing on the screen, there's a shot of a very 1948 rotary telephone, with the receiver snuggled securely in the cradle, resting like a contented baby. An ominous shadow of the telephone on the wall behind it takes up about 75% of the screen, as the sounds of a number being dialed come out of nowhere, followed by a busy signal. Once the credits end, we dissolve to an operator switchboard that takes a page right out of the Apollo 13 playbook as we're treated to the visual of all these connecting wires and hands plugging and unplugging them left and right. A title card comes up that says, In the tangled networks of a great city, the telephone is the unseen link between a million lives. It is the servant of our common needs, the confidant of our inmost secrets. Life and happiness wait upon its ring. And horror. And loneliness. And death. <laughs> Which is bolded, italicized, and underlined. So after that melodramatic opening scroll, we dissolve too what else a nighttime exterior shot of new york city followed by a dissolve into the interior of an office then to one office door in particular that says henry j stevenson vice president private Dissolve to the interior of his office where a foreboding musical score imitates a busy signal as the camera slowly zooms in on the receiver of his telephone it is off the hook and lying on his desk dissolve then to a very disgruntled, very demanding, very manipulative and spoiled hypochondriac named Leona Stevenson, lying in bed and in full-on Pamela Voorhees rage mode as she's yelling at the operator because she cannot reach her husband at his office. She snaps. I don't understand why the wire is busy. The office closes every day at 6 p.m. She reaches for cigarettes, which includes the camera passing by their wedding photo on her nightstand. In the photo, she looks like a plastic doll and her husband, played by Burt Lancaster, looks like he's having his worst life for marrying her. She yells at the operator to try once more, but the operator screws up and crosses the wires. So Leona is privy to a conversation between two men, neither of whom she knows, who are finalizing the details of a plan to murder someone that night at 11.15pm. She repeats, Who is this? But they cannot hear her. So she listens in on the whole conversation until the bitter end. She hangs up, calls the operator back, and says, That call unnerved me dreadfully. I'm home alone, and I'm an invalid, and those dreadful men. What number did you connect me to? And the operator is there like, oh, Let me connect you with the chief operator. So Leona's talking with the chief operator, and the camera brings us out of her room into the hallway, down the stairs, and to the front door, as her overheard dialogue tells us the whole story. She says, "'Operator, I'm an invalid, "'and I've been trying to reach my husband's office. "'He should have been home hours and hours ago. "'I'm all alone tonight. "'My nurse has the night off because my husband had promised. "'As a matter of fact, he had sworn he'd be home by six o'clock. "'I don't know any of the neighbors, "'as we live permanently in Chicago. "'Well, it so happens that the couple I have working for me "'had some important date or other. "'I don't know, a movie, I suppose.' They said it was promised them three weeks ago. You could have thought they at least would have checked with me before leaving, had some realization of my condition. But I've been ringing and ringing the bell for nearly an hour, hoping they'd come back or something, and there isn't a sound downstairs. Not a sound. After this tiresome tirade to a total stranger, said stranger, the chief operator, undoubtedly counting the minutes to when she can step out for a cigarette of her own, weakly says, Yes, madam. Then Leona rages on, not sounding the least bit frail or fatigued. So as I say, when I keep getting the busy signal in my husband's office, I naturally dialed the operator and told her to try it, and she did. And then, out of a clear sky, I was cut into this ghastly conversation between two killers. And then, out of a clear sky, as Leona would say, she suddenly gets this look of self-important satisfaction on her face, as she proclaims, like she's just been crowned, And now I'd like you to trace it for me at once. Imagine her shock, then, when the operator says, Well, madam, that depends on whether the Patties have stopped talking to each other. And Leona scolds, Well, of course they've stopped talking to each other by now. It was just a short call. They weren't exactly gossiping. The operator says, And what is your reason for having the call traced, madam? Reason? Do I have to have a reason when I overheard two murderers? Isn't it obvious? And then she pulls the gloves off for a new phase in this war with the operator who just wants her smoke. Now look here, my good woman! Ooh, fighting words. You probably don't understand, but a human being, a woman, is going to be killed. And with that, the camera swishes to the left to show us the view outside her bedroom window of a dreary New York City evening. Not even a fun little view of the Staten Island Ferry. And she continues and this murder's gonna take place tonight, do you hear me? Tonight at 11.15. Now, isn't that a good enough reason? Quoth the operator. I don't quite understand, madam, but I would suggest that you turn this information over to the police. Leona loses her shit and yells, oh, for heaven's sake, all this idiotic red tape. You just sit there and let people die. And with that padding shot, she slams the receiver down. Then she pulls the phone closer to her again, calls the operator, and asks to be connected to the police. Dissolve to the police station, where we see a pocket watch swinging back and forth in the voice of an officer, saying playfully, tick-tock, tick-tock. The camera pans to the right, where we see this adorable baby wearing a white dress and bonnet with an American flag in her clutches sitting on the officer's desk. She reaches for the watch, he laughs, and he gives it to her. The phone rings and he says to the baby, hey, maybe that's your mom calling for you. But it's not her mom. It's Leona reporting what she heard. He listens to what she has to say, but he's distracted by the crying child. So she angrily says, all right, don't listen, who cares? And bam goes the receiver. She wipes her face, pours herself some water, and through a series of revealing phone calls and flashbacks, we get more of the story. But while Leona repeatedly engages in hand-to-hand combat with her telephone receiver, let's put her on hold for some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both of today's Films Noir. As always, I want to play fair and remind you that in this segment there may be spoilers, so proceed with the knowledge that there'll be references to different points in the films, potentially including the endings, so spoiler alert now. (laughs) Let's begin with Double Indemnity. Number five. Before writing fiction, Double Indemnity author James M. Kane worked as a journalist in New York, where he learned of the real-life murder case of Albert Snyder, who was killed in 1927 by his wife, Ruth Brown Snyder, and her lover, a salesman named Henry Judd Gray. Before committing the murder, she took out a $100,000 life insurance policy on her husband, then tried but failed to kill him several times. She ultimately turned to her boy toy for help, he lent a hand, and Albert Snyder was killed. The two lovers were eventually executed for the murder in 1928. Kane used the case twice as inspiration. Once for his first novel, 1934's The Postman Always Rings Twice, and the second time for Double Indemnity, which added the insurance scam. The story was serialized in the pages of Liberty Magazine in 1936, and the film version burst onto the silver screen in 1944. Number 4 According to director Billy Wilder, quote, Everybody turned me down, end quote, when he was looking for a leading man to play insurance salesman turned murderer Walter Neff, including crime drama stars Alan Ladd and George Raft, who asked Wilder where the lapel in the film was, meaning the moment when Neff would flip over his lapel and reveal a badge. Wilder said, no lapel here, so Raft turned him down. Wilder then approached Fred McMurray, an actor then best known for romantic comedies. McMurray protested that he was the kind of actor who made little comedies, but Wilder talked him into it, and McMurray ultimately looked back on Walter Neff as one of his greatest roles. Number 3 In an interview with Billy Wilder conducted by Robert Porfirio in July 1975, Porfirio asked, Quote, Regarding double indemnity, In the end, you decided the sequence in the gas chamber was anticlimactic? And Wilder responded, We were delighted with it at first. Fred McMurray loved it. He didn't want to play it. No leading man wanted to play it initially. But then he was absolutely delighted. I'm a great friend of his, but can tell you, when he shot that scene, there was no hesitation. No nothing. No problem with his performance. I shot that whole thing in the gas chamber, the execution, when everything was still, with tremendous accuracy. But then I realized, look, this thing is already over. I just already have one tag outside that office when Neff collapses on the way to the elevator, where he can't even light the match. And from the distance he hear the sirens, be it an ambulance or be it the police, you know it's over. No need for the gas chamber." End quote. So much for the original ending. Number two. <laughs> According to the late Robert Osborne, host of Turner Classic Movies, Edward G. Robinson, a gangster picture veteran who had been getting nothing but top billing ever since making a splash in 1931's Little Caesar, was offered the supporting role of Keys in Double Indemnity, but he hesitated, not because he objected to the character, but because it was a supporting role. He was nervous that accepting a supporting role would indicate to the film industry that his status had dropped, but he ultimately decided to do it because he said he'd rather play interesting characters in high-quality films like this one then continue with leading roles in inferior pictures. And number one. Barbara Stanwyck was, at the time, the highest-paid actress in Hollywood. Billy Wilder wanted her for the femme fatale role of Phyllis Dietrichson, seductress and murderess. What is a femme fatale, you may ask? That is the label given to the female character in a noir film who defies expectations of what a real woman, quote-unquote, is like. She defies society's expectations of her as a wife and a mother, she yearns for independence and maybe a little cash, cares for no one but herself, and is so hell-bent on getting what she wants, she could not care less who gets hurt along the way. She plays the male anti-hero for a sucker, a sap, a buffoon, and makes him think that she loves him. And by being so conniving, she manages a lot of times to get him to be the one to do her dirty work, usually the murder. Stanwyck was a serious, acclaimed actress with two Oscar nominations already, but she was nervous about playing such a character. Billy Wilder appealed to her competitive nature, and according to TurnerClassicMovie.com, asked her, Well, are you a mouse or an actress? Stanwyck was there like them's fightin' words, bitch, and she signed on to play the role, which got her her third Best Actress nomination. And speaking of Best Actress nominations, Stanwyck got her fourth for Sorry, Wrong Number, which probably sent Agnes Moorhead's head into a tailspin. Why? Because, number five, <laughs> Moorhead was offered a small role in the film version. Insulted, since she originated the leading role on radio in 1943, which, according to theworld.org, none other than Orson Welles called, quote, the greatest single radio script ever written, end quote, she turned it down. The radio play, voiced by Agnes Moorhead, was added to the National Recording Registry in 2015. And you can easily find it on YouTube. It's about 30 minutes long. Number four. Barbara Stanwyck claimed that the terror she played in the bedroom scenes is actually what made her hair begin to prematurely gray. Well, we all have a story, don't we? Number three. Stanwyck shot her scenes over an intense 12-day period. Since her character was mostly confined to her bed with only the company of a telephone, it presented a challenge for her. Anatoly Litvak, the director, she liked him, she trusted him. He asked her how she preferred to shoot her scenes, and she said, chronological order. She said doing this would help her build the terror of her character most effectively. Quote, I decided I'd prefer to jump in, bam, go, stay there, up, and try to sustain it all the way. End quote. Number two. (laughs) If you're not familiar with a 1982 comedy starring Steve Martin called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, get thee to your viewing queue. It's a spoof of the film noir genre, and it includes clips from a lot of them, including this one. And number one. As for the subsequent work of cast and director, Litvak, the director, helmed that same year the drama The Snake Pit, which got Olivia de Havilland the Oscar for Best Leading Actress and himself a Best Director nomination. As for Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster, the Lux Radio Theatre broadcast a 60-minute-long radio adaptation of Sorry Wrong Number on January 9, 1950, with Stanwyck and Lancaster both reprising their film roles. And now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. The question for this episode, number 69, asked you, which is freakier, overhearing your own murder plot or Barbara Stanwyck's colonial wig and double indemnity? From the Facebook group Silver Screeners, an overwhelming 90% of the votes went to the murder plot with only 10% of voters flipping their wig. But on Twitter, it was the opposite, with 75% of the vote going to the fake follicles and 25% for overhearing the plans for your own murder. But in aggregate, the overheard murder plot takes it. Big thanks to all voters. As I say every time, these polls are silly fun, all geared towards generating interest in each upcoming episode, so thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at frankmandosa 1974 or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And one last thing before we close out, the listener trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. You're all invited to take it at any time. Please know, though, that I do like to err on the side of caution, so I do not announce both first and last names, just in case that would make anyone feel uncomfortable. So I only announce first name and last initial. Unless you tell me otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out and a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And don't worry about timing. It does not matter what episode you're listening to, however far back, however recent. Answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You will get your meme and your shout-out. And if you're a creator of anything from music to podcasts, websites, YouTube series, brownies, I'm always happy to give you a no-strings-attached plug because, as I say each time, people help people, and that's that. So last time, we celebrated Halloween with an affectionate look at 1966's TV special, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And the question was, When Linus and Sally are waiting in the pumpkin patch throughout Halloween night, which Peanuts character plays a mean trick on them and pretends to be the Great Pumpkin? Was it Lucy, Violet, or Snoopy? And the answer is... That bastard Beagle himself, Snoopy, a movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting, is on its way to the following, in no particular order. Megan Q, who sarcastically, I assume sarcastically, said Spike, Snoopy's twin brother. Great hearing from you, Megan. Hope you enjoyed, and play again anytime you like. The one, the only, Mary C, a long-time regular listener and trivia player. Mary, you rock. Thank you, as always, and have a happy November. And joining Mary in the trivia royalty circle is... From Italy, DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Oscars podcast, who offers this additional information. In Italy, the title of the special was apparently Waiting for the Great Watermelon, and it first aired in April, not October, since at the time, he says, no one heard of Halloween over there since it began as a very American holiday. Well, nothing like a big-ass watermelon to welcome the springtime. And my buddy Chris from the podcast, The Movie Psycho, dropped my jaw when he said... I'm 95% sure it was Snoopy that pulled the prank, but I'm not a big Charlie fan, so I'm going on memory. Chris, I'm sorry, not a Peanuts fan? And I thought it was unbelievable that you didn't like Knives Out. I'll forgive you. There's also the legend Liz M., my sister-in-law, who kicks ass eight ways from Sunday. Congrats are in order for you, sis. A new member of the Trivia Conqueror Circle is Keith V., who nailed it on his very first question. As did a second new player, Tamina P., Thanks to both of you for playing, and also to someone on Instagram with the account name Madtown Scampa, who has a number of Charlie Brown Parody Comics posted. A big thank you to everyone, as you are all sincerely appreciated. Whether or not you're a podcaster yourself, you're the ones keeping this trivia segment alive and well. Keep your eyes open for those memes, and to anyone else kind enough to be listening, please do not hesitate to join in, anytime. Nothing to lose, and a shout-out and cool meme to gain. And go ahead and begin with this episode's question why the hell not? The film noir genre had its time in the spotlight during the immediate and post World War II years, but its characteristics and tropes have resurfaced a few times over the decades since. Notably, in what 1997 Los Angeles set noirish thriller, directed and co written by Curtis Hansen, based on the James Elroy novel, and starring Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce, Danny DeVito, James Cromwell, and Kim Basinger in the role that got her the Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or simply email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 69 to a close. Big thanks once again for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the show's visibility in these platforms, which only means that more people can find it. So I will catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good autumn weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of Barbara Stanwyck, desperately calling the operator to get the police only to cross wires this time with the customer service line of our double indemnity life insurance agent. We know your time is valuable. Thank you for holding. Someone will be with you as soon as possible.